Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bena, and the name of the other, Rechab. Sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitiam and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimon and the Beerothite, Rechab and Bena set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bena, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay in his bed, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> uh, we just come before you this morning. Uh, we just thank you for the body here that you have given us, that we can come together and worship you. Uh, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be with Mark this morning. Um, and that uh, it would be your words through Mark and not his words, Lord, that we would come with humble hearts and open minds as we learn more about you this morning, um, that we would seek your word and your will for our lives, Father. And just thank you again uh, for this time, um, and uh, just be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, man, I love 2 Samuel. <laughs> so for those who are like, do you think, again, I say this like, it feels like every week with 2 Samuel, those who say that the Bible is boring, I thought it was pretty exciting to me. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in the story, but it's exciting to read, right? Exciting not in like, wow, this is awesome. But in a way, yes, this is awesome because God even uses situations like this so uh, to bring himself glory. And that's kind of what we're going to get out. So to give a little bit of 
reminder and a background, just a general understanding, starting in 2 Samuel. So David has been anointed king. He was anointed king in 1 Samuel. Uh, but the problem was that Saul was already king. He was already anointed by the Lord. Saul eventually dies in battle, um, which you would think then David would be able to step up and just take the throne because he's the anointed king, but that's not how it works out. His, uh, Saul's son, um, Ishbosheth takes the throne. There's a division. Now you've got Israel, um, 11 tribes that are following Ishbosheth, and then you've got Judah, who's following David, which David is a part of Judah. So you've got two capitals. You've got Hebron, and you've got, um, I'm trying to remember, it starts with an M. It's, it's not Jerusalem, okay? So it's, it's up a little bit further north where Ishbosheth um, has, has his center. Um, his Ishbosheth's commander, Abner, really is the power, and he's starting to take control. Ishbosheth stands up to him, so Abner says, well, forget you. I'm going to go to David now. And so he goes to David, and he says, I can give you all of Israel, and they're working together to try to figure out how to create this peace to end the civil war. Um, and uh, Ishbosheth is so powerless to the point where David says, give me back my wife, your sister, and Ishbosheth says, okay, and then hands him, you know, hands over his sister to David. And so David is slowly starting to gain influence and gain power over all of, of Israel. And then suddenly, two men show up in David's camp. Abner, uh, maybe I should say this is probably important too. Abner, the commander, is murdered by David's commander, Joab, because Joab had a blood feud and wanted revenge and took matters into his own hands. David doesn't punish Joab immediately, but says, you'll get your comeuppance. That's basically what he says, and hands Joab over to the Lord to take care of. In the meantime, these two guys show up shortly thereafter, or sometime after, and they show up with Ishbosheth's head. And they think this is, this is going to be good. They, they're going to get some sort of reward for this. Now, when we read Scripture, there are some things that are going to help us to better understand a passage. So when you get a passage like this, when you read this, which is really gruesome, this is a gruesome passage, and you say, what does this have to do with us today? Well, some of the things that will help us to better understand, actually, probably a better question is, is why, why did God put this here? Why, why this chapter at this place at this time, and why are we supposed to read this before you even get to how does this affect us. So what is the reason that God put this here? When you're studying Scripture, there are some things that will actually help us better understand it. And if you've attended here for a while, there's some of these things, probably all of them, you've heard at least once. Okay, for instance, if something is, pre, uh, if something is repeated, it's probably what? Important, right? So if you see something within a passage that's repeated a number of times, you got to keep that. Like, okay, here's this idea, and he's repeating it over and over and over again. Why? So you, you look at that. Also, another one is keep an eye out for what I call connecting words. I'm a math guy, not an English guy, so just put up with me. Okay, things like but, therefore, because, for, so that. So these are all co- what I call connecting words that help us to better understand. This happens because this happens, or Therefore, because of what happened before, now this is happening, or to give an explanation. Another is to look for seeming contradictions. Now, the reason why I say seeming contradictions is because the Bible is the Word of God, 
and the Bible cannot contradict itself. Because if it did, then God would be contradicting himself, meaning that he is either a liar or he's incompetent to the point where he has to correct himself. Oh, I didn't think that one through. I got to like fix that. That is not the God we worship. And so if we see something which looks like a contradiction, the problem is with our interpretation and understanding of the passage, not the passage itself. Does that make sense? Which means we got to study it. We got to look at it. We got to chew the cud, if you want to say. You, you eat it, and you chew, and you chew, and you chew, and you prayerfully, prayerfully think, think over it. Because the, the, the problem is not the passage. The problem is not the Word of God. Our understanding of it. That's where the problem lies. And then one last one is what I call weird passages. Strange verses that seem to be out of place. Something out of place may actually be key to understanding the passage as a whole. So when you're reading through a passage and all of a sudden you go, uh, why? Like, that's really weird. That's a key. Okay, why? Now i got to figure out why. Now these last two, they're actually found in 2 Samuel chapter 4. David's actions seem to be a contradiction to his response to Joab. So how he handles these two brothers seems to be different than how he handles Joab. And they're both murder. But he acts very differently. So there's a seeming contradiction. And the section on Mephibosheth seems to be out of place. Did you catch that? All of a sudden... This guy named Mephibosheth, well, kid named Mephibosheth shows up, and then he just moves on. Like it was just like a, well, hey, this thought came into my mind, but anyway, so let's just keep moving on with the story. Okay, so that's weird. It seems out of place. And then wrestle, wrestling with these two things are going to actually help us better understand the main focus of this chapter. And that main focus, okay, I'm going to give you the answer here to if you if you take notes at the bottom i don't do this it says focus underneath at the very last page under the the insert what is the focus of the passage here's the focus of the passage the lord is david's redeemer not rechab or baanel not these two brothers not himself the lord is his redeemer okay so how are we going to get there from here well Okay, David is the Lord's Redeemer, or Lord is David's Redeemer, not the other way. Don't, don't. That was a mistake. Caught that one. When the brothers arrive in Hebron with Ishbosheth's head, they think David is going to welcome the news and give, him, give them a reward, whatever that may be money, a position of authority. But like the man who claimed to take King Saul's life on the battlefield, they sorely misjudged David's reaction. Instead of a reward, or maybe I should say for their reward, he executes them. He cuts off their hands and their feet, which was a common practice back in that day. And he hangs their bodies public, publicly for everyone to see. So this seems to be, again, a bit hypocritical, right, of David, considering how he refused to take Joab's life for murdering Abner. And so why did David react differently in these two situations? Well, the, the answer is completely unsatisfying. 
We have no idea (laughs) because we're not told. We're not told exactly why he acted this way and not this way. Now, we want to know the ins and the outs of David's mindset, but we just aren't given enough information to form an answer beyond an assumption. And then that's the fifth thing. Assumptions are dangerous things. That's a good rule in life, kids. Don't make an assumption. It'll probably get you in trouble, okay? Same thing here. When we're reading Scripture, when we make assumptions, and then we base an entire understanding of a passage based off of an assumption that we're not told, you better tread lightly, because more than likely, it's going to lead you in a very, very bad direction, a.k.a. heresy and untruth, and you will be leading people astray from God. That's, that's really what assumptions can do. So, what we do know, though, is that David hands Joab over to God's judgment, even though David has the right as king to sentence him to death. He hands him over to God. We also know that Joab and Abishai's relationship with David, so Joab and his brother, his, their relationship with David is forever affected by this situation. And in the end, it will cost both those men their lives. We also know that Abner was no longer standing in the way of David taking the throne because he was actively working to make David king. That seat for the throne, those who who were standing in the way of David taking the throne was reserved for two men, one being Ishbosheth. And when these two brothers tell their story, it sounds like they're taking credit for David's good fortune of his rival's death. And that's why I think this is the crux of the passage. Rechab and Bayana's words ring with a tone of arrogance. Look what we did to the man who was your enemy, who sought your life. We killed him so that you could become king over Israel. And they even have the guts to say that they were accomplishing the Lord's vengeance upon the house of Saul. Now talk about a big head. Look what we did. But I'm actually not completely sure that they're wrong. Which brings us to the strange part of this passage. This is all going to come together, okay? What is the purpose of being told about the origin of Mephibosheth's lameness? Why are we told how his foot, his feet got hurt? Now, this is the first time we hear about Jonathan's son. So why now? Why here? Now, did you catch my statement earlier that there are two men who are standing in the way of David taking the throne? One is Ishbosheth, the other, Mephibosheth. As Jonathan's son, he was next in line to take the throne after Ishbosheth's death. But he was unable to because of his lameness. And so you have to ask the question who or what caused his lameness? Well, he fell, Mark, or he was dropped by his nurse. Now, today, this wouldn't be much of an issue, or be less of an issue, maybe I should say, because back, back then, there were no wheelchairs. There was no surgery to fix his feet. He was unable and unfit to lead as king. Now, that's not a character flaw in him. That's just the reality. What does the king do? He leads his army out to fight in their battles, and he could not do 
He could not do that. He could not lead as king. And so I asked the question again, what, who or what caused his lameness? And who or what even caused the death of Ishbosheth? Well, David gives us the answer in verse 9. He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. So who saved David from Saul when the spear just missed him? Who saved David when his wife Michael deceived the guards, allowing time, David time to flee? Who saved David from Saul's army when he was about to be captured and Saul suddenly receives a message that the Philistines are attacking? Was it David? Was it Michael? Was it the Philistines? Was it Mephibosheth's nurse? Was it Mephibosheth himself? Was it Rechab and Baana? Well, in one sense, yes, but in a more fundamental sense, no. Ultimately, God was the one who was behind it all. And by, by and through these people and these events, God brought to fulfillment his promise to make David king over all Israel. So all the horrible things that happened to David, he had every right to get his vengeance. He had a couple of times where he could have taken Saul's life himself, and yet he stood back and he said, no, my life is in the hands of the Lord. He is my redeemer, and I'm going to trust him to do what he needs to do to get me to become king. And to do that means being on the, the run for years, his life constantly being under threat. Mephibosheth and Ishbosheth before him in the line of succession. A civil war. I mean, that's this not like this easy transition. How frustrated he must have been. And yet, in his faith, he said, no, I'm going to trust the Lord. And anybody who then took it upon themselves to make David king, he says, uh, uh, no. The Lord is my redeemer. The Lord is the one who will make me king. But even this brings up a serious question. How can God use and ordain sin, such as the murder of Ishbosheth, to accomplish his desires, making David king, and still hold those who sinned accountable? So if God ordained, if God caused these brothers to behead Ishbosheth, bring it to David, and they still have to die for murder. If God ordained that, why does he still hold them accountable for it? Because David himself states that God is his redeemer, not these two brothers. God is the one who ultimately gets any credit when David takes the throne, and yet David holds the brothers accountable for an action which fulfilled God's desire to place David on the throne. How can both be right? Well, this isn't the only time we see this dilemma at work in Scripture. There are events where God causes or allows sin to happen to accomplish His own goals and desires. For instance, we all remember the, you remember the story of Joseph in Egypt? Right? He's sold into slavery by his brothers because they hate him and they're jealous of him. And then years later, he meets up with his brothers 
And what does Joseph tell them? Because obviously, he's second in command in Egypt at this point. His brothers come. They find out it's Joseph. What are they thinking? Uh-oh, <laughs> he's alive, and I'm dead. Because they knew what they did was wrong, and they deserved death. But what does Joseph say to them? This is in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, hear these words right. God didn't turn it to good. He meant it for good. What does that mean? Who ordained the brothers to throw Joseph into the well and be sold into slavery? God did. God did that. He did that. The brothers sinned, but behind their sin, God was actively at work to save his covenant people from a famine. In other words, you can even say it this far. If God did not do that, there would be no covenant family. There would be no Jewish nation. They'd all be dead because of the famine. And yet the sinful actions of the brothers, which in the end, again, saves God's people, they're not praised as glorious and honoring to God. It's not like, hey, here's the brothers. You guys need to live up to their example. Not at all. The brothers actually pay the price for their sin against Joseph through broken relationships and distrust. There's a price to pay. It wasn't death, but there was still a price price to pay. Or another event, take Samson. You know, the guy with the long hair, really strong. He was God's appointed judge of Israel, and and yet his life was far from obedient to God. There was one incident in his marriage uh, to a Philistine woman, okay, which was strictly prohibited, okay? The Israelite people were to marry within Israel, not to go out to the Philistines, not to go out and intermarry with those who are not Israelite. And yet, and so he breaks this. He marries a Philistine woman, and yet we are told in Judges 14.4 that Samson's marrying the Philistine woman was from the Lord because the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Man, wrap your head around that one. And eventually Samson pays for his sinful disobedience, not just this, but many, with his life. But then you get the ultimate example of God using sin to accomplish his desires, and that's in the death of his son upon the cross. Through Christ's death, through the sinful act of murder, God the Father makes His Son, Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer. After Christ's death and resurrection, I'm not making this up, okay? Not the death of Christ. I'm not making that. God's the one who ordained this all to happen. After His death, after Christ's death and His resurrection, the believers, the church in Jerusalem, they're praying to God for boldness in the face of persecution. They're living for God, they're living for Christ, 
And people are persecuting him for it, for, persecuting them for it. And so this is, these are the words that, that they use to describe Christ's death upon the cross. This is how they describe his death in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Listen carefully for this, to this. For truly in this city, that in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, Christ is the anointed king, so truly in this city there were gathered together against your anointed king, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, now listen carefully, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God the Father ordained and predestined Christ to be murdered, his own son. Which is why people struggle with this. They say, well, that's divine child abuse. How could a godly, heavenly father send his son to the cross to make him suffer and to die? God had planned and predestined Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel to hang an innocent man on a cross. He planned and he used wicked, sinful men to kill his own son, and yet he still holds these people accountable for their sin. How can he do that? Well, here's the thing. God didn't force them to kill Jesus. He didn't force them. They did exactly as their wicked and sinful hearts desired. Another way to say it, if you want it to be more soft, he gave them over to the desires of their hearts. And yet he planned for them to be given over to the desires of their hearts. They had opportunity after opportunity, including Pilate, the Roman, to declare Jesus innocent. The Jews and the Gentiles, they had opportunity after opportunity to believe in Christ as the Messiah, and they still rejected him, desiring his death above their repentance and belief. And yet his death, the very thing they sought to accomplish was the means by which sinful men who repent and believe in him are saved from divine judgment. Turn with me to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, I want you to... 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, there's, there's a lot. I, I wanted to read 13 through 25, but I'm going to focus on 22 through 25. Basically, starting in first, uh, verse 13, Peter's saying, subject yourselves to the governing authority that's been placed over you. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Suffer because Christ suffered. Um, be subject to your master's servants with all respect be good, do good, not because people deserve it, but because you know who's really in charge. And then you get to, oh, and, and starting at verse 21, he says, by the way, you've been called to suffer. People don't like preaching on that one, do they? What is your calling as a Christian? Your calling is to suffer. So when we experience suffering, we shouldn't be like, what in the world is going on? Well, no. If you're suffering for your faith, not because you're a jerk, but because if you're suffering because you're a jerk, that's on you. If you're suffering for your faith, that is exactly what we're called to do. 
and called to as Christians. But starting in verse 22, this is, this is how Peter describes Christ. Christ, he, Christ, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, that is, his Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that is, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So think this one through. God predestined sinful men to do a sinful act to a sinless man in order to redeem and save sinful men. I'll say that again. I'll say it slower. God predestined sinful men, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Jews, Gentiles, to do a sinful act, murder, to a sinless man, Jesus Christ, in order to redeem or buy back and save sinful men. And the lack of belief in those who placed him on the tree, their lack of recognizing Christ as Messiah, placed them under the divine judgment of the Redeemer which in the end is Jesus Christ. He is not only the sacrificial lamb, he's not only the redeemer, he is also the judge whom every soul will stand before at the end of time and will be judged. Do you belong to me or do you not belong to me? Have you returned to me or have you walked away from me? Have you rejected me? Like Rechab and Bayana who rejected the Lord as their redeemer, and receive the divine judgment of God through David, so it is with those today who reject Christ as their Redeemer. David put his trust in the Lord, who's the only one who could save him. Do we do the same? Without Christ's death upon the cross, none of us would be saved from the wrath of God for our sins none of us would receive eternal life. But through his death, God the Father redeems those who are wicked, those who are sinful. He buys back from the power of sin and death those who turn to him and believe. So, to answer the question, how, why, why did David act differently with the two brothers than he did with Joab? And his brother. Again, we're not told exactly why. But what we are told about these brothers, Bayana, Rechab, is that they thought if they could take matters into their own hands, that the king would accept them. Now, what could they have done? They could have just gone to David, not killed his Seth. They could have shown their loyalty to him. Instead, they try to buy their way into his good graces, good graces. And I'll tell you, you cannot buy your way into Christ's good grace. There is nothing that we can do that is enough to pay our debt 
before Christ for our sinful rebellion against Him. If you want something to do, submit yourselves to Christ. Submit yourselves to His rule. He is the only one who can save. He is the Redeemer and He is the Judge. Place Him, place yourself at His feet. Believe, confess Him as Lord. Give Him your heart and you will be saved. See, communion is a memorial service. It's a time for those who believe, those who are saved, to remember, I am not my own redeemer. So I use the words, right, believe. I use the words submit, right? Those are actions, right, that we, we can do. But let's be honest. If, we, if our hearts are not changed, then we are just as bad as Bayana and Rakab, thinking that we could buy our way in. And if I just do this, that God will be satisfied. See, the thing is, is, those who believe, why do they believe? Is because God has changed your hearts, has softened them, has softened us to go, man, I am, I am sinful and there's nothing I could do about it. I deserve eternal death, just like the two brothers deserve death. And so, God, I'm going to put my trust in you. I'm going to be like David. I'm going to hand myself over to you as my redeemer, and I'm going to trust that you're going to do what you need to do. And guess what? He saves. So, yes, we submit. Yes, we believe. Yes, we confess. That can only happen when our hearts are softened by the work of the Spirit in our life. And so communion is a time for those who believe to remember the saving power of Christ who is our Redeemer and our Savior from our sin. That through Him we have died to the power of sin, as 1 Peter says. It died to the power of sin and we live to the power of God's righteousness. We realize that the only way we could fight our sin, the only way we could defeat our sin is not in ourselves, but in the power of the anointed king. This time in communion, it's a time to remind us that without him, we are just like Rechab and Bayana, just like Pilate and Herod, just like the Gentiles and the Jews. It's a time for us to praise him for his glorious power to save, to redeem us, and to make us his, adopting us as children into his family. And so that's why we take this time seriously as God's people. If you're not a believer in Christ, you, you can't fully grasp, you can't grasp at all the reality of salvation. The reality of the sin of our hearts that without Christ, there go I. And so we ask that if you're not a believer, that you, you refrain from joining us. We take this very seriously. Now, if you are a believer, then 
here's my exhortation. Your confidence in being a believer is not found in you. It's found in him. And so in the power of God, he saved you, that you don't need to sit back and go, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. You're right, you're not. That's the whole point, but he is. And so he saved you from your sin by his power, not yours. He gets the glory. And so when we come up, we're not sitting here saying, I'm perfect. Oh, I've just made it. I am so, I'm good. I'm good. No, we're acknowledging that without the cross, we can't grasp this. We can't understand it and we would not be saved. And so we glorify God. Remember, Jesus says to us, remember what I do for you, that I shed my blood for you. And I gave my body to pay your debt. And because of that, we glorify him and we praise him and we honor him. So we take this time seriously. We don't have communion, please. We don't have anybody standing in the back showing your Christian credentials. Okay, we don't, we don't do that. But I also want to remind you that to approach this table in a flippant manner, and to go, whatever, it's not that big of a deal, is to put yourself in danger. The Bible says, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of consequences, spiritual consequences. One of them could be death. Now, I'm not saying I've ever seen anybody die from communion, okay? I'm not saying that. But we take this so seriously that, in a sense, our lives are on the line if we treat this and belittle this, because in belittling this, we are belittling Christ and saying his sacrifice was nothing. I don't need him. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be. So take this seriously. And if you're a believer, take it seriously. If there's sin that you have before God, confess it. Give it to him. And come to the table and take the cup and take the bread. Sit at your seat and then as a family of God, together with joy in our hearts, Not depressed, not down because of our sin, but joy and love and graciousness and and giving glory to Him and giving praise and honor to Him because it's not held against us anymore because it was all laid upon Christ on the cross. In the eyes of God, though we still sin, we're white as snow. We're clean. We're cleansed in His sight. Because when he looks down upon you as his child, he doesn't see you. He sees his son. He doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees Christ's righteousness. So approach this table. Yes, with fear and trembling in in a good way, awe and understanding of who God is, but with an utter heart of joy for Christ and his sacrifice that he saved us. That he saved us. So when you are ready, go ahead and go in the back. We'll start the line back there. Grab a cup, grab a piece of bread, come and sit down, and then we'll take communion together as a family of Christ. So whenever you're ready, make your way back.